So this morning the attitude of relaxed attention words that give this suggestion to the mind, you know, the sense of being at ease, not, you're not trying to get anything, uh, attain anything or achieve anything. The problem with uh, what we call formal meditation is that, is that we've often been on retreats where the whole emphasis has been on achievement and attainment. Work hard, keep quiet, don't speak, noble silence, and then get their samadhi. And so the, the, the condition of the mind is easily, you know, these kind of suggestions, how do, how do they affect you? You know, what, when, when I make these imperatives, they work hard, practice a lot, don't talk to anyone, uh, get the, this level of concentration, attain the first jhana, now this, now I just know how this affects me. Is that it? It feeds this, uh, this bawadanha uh, tendency that's strong in me, wanting to become, get something I don't have, achieve something. And it seems right, you know. It's in, in the level of worldly conditions. When I think of myself on, as a person, when I see myself from the thinking mind, from memory, from identity, and I can find all kinds of things, you know, see how uh, uh, blind I am sometimes, insensitive, stupid, and whatnot. I can, you know, certainly can't see myself as a person as being enlightened. So, and that's because the personal, the per personality is about thinking, isn't it? It's, a, it's attachment to thought, memory, identity with the five khandhas. So that's where, you know, the thinking process is not to be trusted. The, the habitual thinking process, the learning to use thinking skillfully is the whole point of like vipassana meditation practice. You're using concepts, ideas, teachings, but not for identity, not for develop just more habits to or to become anything. So the, the Buddha is kind of like a tool, excellent, instrument to use, but can be used all wrongly. If we, if we start out from ignorance and never get beyond it, then you use Buddhism in ignorant ways. So beyond thinking is awareness. You, know, you can be aware of thinking. Thinking can't be aware Thinking is a function of the mind, so you can figure things out, and uh, you know, with with thinking, with logic, and so forth. But you can't 
you can, you know, you can know all about something but not know the reality of it. So this awaken, waking up, paying attention, sati sampachanya, sati panya, bhuto, these are the words that are significant, not as kind of comparing yourself, you know, how am I very mindful or trying to figure out am I the Buddha, am I the Puto, and trying to think about what Puto is and whether consciousness is Buddha and or consciousness and mindfulness are God or, uh, you know, we can get into, into all kinds of uh, elaborate um, intellectual twists. But it's not, you know, then we're, we're, just, we're just throwing ourselves into that vortex again. So this is the determination not to solve all these things through rationality, but through trusting in awareness. And this you, you can prove to yourself, awareness, mindfulness. Can be realized, recognized. Just as simple as, as taking the, the, the concept, I am an unenlightened person. And I'm practicing in order to become enlightened just by thinking that in an intentional way. Be aware of thinking is thinking, not, not trying to prove whether the statement is right or wrong. We're not trying to convince ourselves, I'm, I'm perfectly all right, I don't need anybody, I'm already enlightened, enlightened is my true nature, and then that is, that's not getting anywhere either. Because it's, it's still, you know, whether you think you're enlightened or unenlightened, it's still thinking, attachment to, to concepts and a sense of a self. That's why it's not a becoming process, because that's all about becoming. I, I have to do something now to become something, what I, what hopefully better than what I am now. The idea of becoming enlightened means that, you know, on a thinking level, I'm a much nicer person. I'm an enlightened person. I uh, take all those Sotapanna, Sakadara, Kamiyana, Kami Arahant concepts and make them personal. So the ego, and this is what we call in common parlance, the ego, Sakya Ditti. You know, what we don't want to, not trying to feed that anymore, trying to reinforce it. Or to have a Buddhist ego. Just change the, the costume. You know, so that you look Buddhist rather than Christian. <laughs> but the, um, the, the whole uh, profundity of Buddhist teaching is, is in the word Buddha itself, awakened. It's conscious individual awaken to the way it is. 
And so, in reflecting on the reality of this moment, this is a separate form, the body, it's conscious. Now this is reflecting on the, this, that we, I didn't create the body on a personal level. It's not Sakya Ditti, the body. It is a Sankara, it is what it is. But I can't claim that I, you know, I create an attachment to it, an identity with it. Out of ignorance. So I, you know, I judge it and identify with it. But I don't create the body out of Sakya Ditti. But I project that, you know, the, onto the body. This is my body. I am a man. And, uh, and all the identities, assumptions, attitudes accordingly. Consciousness, I don't create that. The body was born as a conscious form. Nothing to do with, with me uh, as a person. So this way of uh, reflecting, this is reflective thinking about the the body isn't, you know, is a is a condition. It arises, it's born, and it dies. It is the way it is. You're seen in terms of of the way it is, rather than the what you think it is. You might think it's yours. You you know, it's mine. I'm this this body, and and I'm the only qualities of this body. I'm the age of this body. I'm the gender of this body. And so this is all proliferation through ignorance. Sakyaditi, Silabhata Brahmasa, Wichikija, the first three fetters are conditions that you acquire after you're born. You're not born. With Sakya Ditti, Silabhata Bharamasa, Wichikecha. These are the first three manacles that bind us to birth and death. So that this is where like stream entry, Sotapanna, is actually breaking, seen through the artifices that we acquire after birth, after the birth of the body. You know, so, it, you know, you acquire a sense of yourself as a person, Sakyaditi forms afterward. But when you're born, when the body's born, it's conscious form. You, so it's not, you don't create the consciousness out of ignorance. So then you, you reflect, well, consciousness, this is we're experiencing consciousness right now, at least I am. Now this is just a word, consciousness, English word. And of course in the in the Western world now everybody's interested in it. Even psychologists now <laughs> interested in consciousness. And uh, and yet it you know it is we're all conscious. But then we, we want to think about consciousness and define it. And so you hear some of the most 
ridiculous definitions of it coming from scientists even or psychologists, psychiatrists. Because to define consciousness without, from the Sakyaditi view You know, you're, you're, you're labeling it as something, you're limiting it to, to the prejudices, biases, views that you, that you acquire after birth. So you're not really recognizing it, you're merely holding an idea about consciousness, theorizing about it. But the reality is, it's here and now. You know, each one of us is conscious at this moment. Then you're at, well, what is it then? Point it out to me. That's thinking again. So you're, you're trying to find consciousness as some object that you imagine. Something that you, like you're seeing a, you know, an object, uh, a tree or a flower or a cat or a dog or something. But consciousness, is the very milieu that we're experiencing. It's like being in the space, we're in a consciousness. This is consciousness. It's not, you know, you, you can awaken to it, recognize it. And so that's mindfulness, being mindful, it allows this the reality of consciousness, pure consciousness, before we, we create the delusions into it. <coughs> so that's where, in my own experiments with Sound of Silence, have been, because actually I find that this uh, resonating vibration that I hear, that I notice, When I, when I trust that, when I just rest in it, then the thinking process stops. The sense of a self drops away. But there's consciousness, still conscious. There's attention, there's sati, and there's sampanchanya. And it gives this, this, uh, this wide, kind of infinite, infinite conscious reality. Consciousness has no, no boundary. In Arupa Jhanas, isn't it? When they talk about the Arupa Jhanas. This is all, you know, this Arupa Jhanas, they're about space, infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. Try to imagine any of those infinite space, infinite consciousness, no, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. Now that's a good one, isn't it? Try to figure neither perception or non-perception out with perception, with grasping perception. You know, try to reason that one out intellectually. You get your brain into a real twist.
most everybody just gives up on it because when you're trying to think about it and define it and figure what it is. Because you're, you're, you're attaching to perceptions all the time. It's neither nor. And the thinking mind has to be black or white. It's either or. It's either this or it's that. If it it's got, if you're not, if it's not right, then it's wrong. If it's not good, then it must be bad. And that's the, the thinking mind. Dualistic. So this, this sense of infinity uh, is another word. Means that, uh, you know, infinity is uh, seems quite abstract, doesn't it? Something that has no beginning or end. So we can understand the concept of it. The reality of it, what's the reality of infinity at this moment? And, and oh, I'm not prepared for that. I'm, I'm still, I haven't even got first Johnny yet. I'm... Uh, I'm still struggling with the, you know, uh, sexual desire and anger. I can't assume anything so advanced as infinity. I still have my process to go through, my psychological needs and my emotional traumas to figure out first. And then this is all the self again, isn't it? I'm not ready yet for enlightenment. I've got to work out all these things first in order to purify myself, in order to become uh, something maybe in this life, uh, if not maybe in the next life. So notice that the thinking process, insidious, uh, uh, deluder, we really believe it because it seems true. It has a, it seems real. And like we're being really honest. And then so I found myself thinking that honesty lay in admitting all my faults to the world. You know, I'm transparent. I'm not hiding. There's no secrets. Um, I'll tell you the truth about myself. Do you want to hear the real truth about me? I'm no good. I'm unenlightened. I still have great hatred and delusion. So that's the, you know, this is like being transparent and telling the truth about yourself. Then, then here in England, of course, people don't like to tell how good they are. So the truth is usually telling about how all oh, you you know you you're not you know all that good you're not really rather or quite and then it it uh, nobody you know here is bad form to say you know I'm the very best I'm the champion I'm going to practice and you know, I'm going to be the first arahant in britain and we that was a vulgar really it must be an american or something <laughs> so this is a uh, because that's culturally un, un, 
unacceptable, isn't it, to, to, to promote yourself and say, claim, you know, you even have ambitions to become the first British Arahant. But then, uh, also, it, this, is, this could be a rather charming trait, you know, the, the English mindset has its charm, but also, you know, is a form of delusion because we, we, we think of reality always in the negative, usually through negative uh, perception. Or the other, say the American style, the, the greatest, the mightiest, the biggest, the best, best country in the whole world. That's how Americans think. And, <laughs> and so it's in terms of superlatives, but also, you know, that's a delusion too, but but also recognizing one's uh, virtues. Even as a person, as a personality, recognize good intentions, uh, aspirations, uh, the, the, the longing to, to help others, the interest in, in, in being generous and kind, and uh, admitting these to yourself, Because even on the Sakyaditi level, if you're going to have an ego, you might as well have a, you know, have a more balanced ego than just one that, that's endlessly critical. And just sees things through, you know, dwells on the mistakes, the faults, the weaknesses that you see in yourself. And so, you know, that leads to just feeling of, of despair, depression. But in terms of ultimate reality, then the, we don't create ourselves anymore uh, with, with superlatives in either direction. We awaken, we observe. And then the, the teaching of the Buddha is, to be, is for it's suggestion, a way of looking at this moment that we might never recognize or think of if, and just on a personal level we didn't have a skillful tool like this. Learning to use this, this tool for awakening. We forget, you know, even though you know, we easily get pulled back, lost into our own delusions. Because what we call the real world is, uh, you know, everybody else supports this, this illusory world is the real world. So that's where we easily doubt our own reality. Because it's not the real world according to what the society says or even demands of us. And, and our personalities are programmed by those delusions. The self is real. The Sakyaditi is reality. This is the way I am. I am unenlightened and I'm practicing in order to become enlightened. 
So then the taking this 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 uh, assumption and intentionally this is what I did anyway, I intentionally think it. But I the, the intention was to listen. Because this seemed right in a way. It seemed humble and and safe. It's safe to, to you know, if I go around saying I'm enlightened, then I'm in trouble. You know, once somebody claims they're enlightened, you, you're really in for trouble because nobody wants you to be. Or if they do, they... They usually do it out of ignorance themselves. So I mean, it it's uh, also audacious, isn't it? It's outrageous. You know, they you think you're enlightened? You're a pretty sloppy eater, Arjun Samedo. <laughs> you still scatter rice all over the place. <laughs> You can't, if you were enlightened, you, can, you would certainly eat in a more, a neater way than you do. I've seen you, I've seen, you know, all kinds of things an enlightened person would never do. But that's not the point, is it? it's like to, to listen to yourself thinking. This assumption, you know, the, I am unaligned, this I am, just those two words, I am. Intentionally thinking it, but with an attitude of listening. You know, that which listens and hears one, the thought is not a thought. And then this is a way of kind of learning to discern the difference between pure subjectivity and the ego, the sakyaditi. So taking this, this uh, I am, the words I am, and then enlightened, unenlightened, I am uh, Buddhist monk, or I am Ajahn Sumato, I am, and listening to it over and over again, but with the reflecting, uh, that which is aware of this thought, What's that? You know, there's like self-inquiry. It's the way separating. You know, otherwise we just we we don't know the difference. We're caught in with the uh, usually we're we're bound to the concept. I am I am unenlightened, and and it seems true according to the conditioning of the mind. But in terms of the reality of it, it's a, it's a statement, isn't it? It's two sounds we make, two, it's a creation out of ignorance. Because there's awareness of I am unenlightened. So you know, this is where mindfulness is being able to, our ability to Observe this, observe thinking, or intention, or feeling. 
not from uh, thinking about it or analyzing it, but just recognizing it. So like observing the three kinds of desire, gamadana, pavadana, vipavadana, this compulsion, like that I've got to meditate, I've got to practice hard, uh, really work hard and get my samadhi, this, you know, this, this kind of attitude where meditation retreats, meditation practice become very compulsive, kind of, you know, really get in there and do it. And watching, observing this, this compulsiveness, this feeling of having to do something, get something I don't have, is like this. Even though what I want to get is very good, but this this uh, bhavadana oftentimes is the is the is the very kind of misery of the holy life, misery of monasticism, wanting to to get something. People disrobe because they can't get what they want out of this life. You know, they, they, you, maybe you expect all kinds of rewards for living the brahmacharya life, becoming a samana. Then you don't get what you want, and then you think, well, it's no good or it doesn't work, or I can't do it. But that whole scenario, isn't it, is, is sakyaditi wanting something, expecting uh, some desired result, some reward for hard work, some reward for denying sensual indulgence, some medal, some title maybe, practicing to become. And by just using these, this kind of reflection, you know, I began to notice how compulsive I am as a person. I'm a very com I'm a very compulsive personality. I could probably have been an obsessive compulsive personality. And so that very that very tendency, you know, you take it wherever you go, whether you're on holiday or, or practicing meditation or whatever, you, and it tends to make you feel guilty if you're not really working. Being lazy is, is, is like unacceptable. Laziness is despicable. And hard work is praiseworthy. And... Uh, so even when you, you know, when you, it's time to relax, you, even relaxation becomes compulsive. Now it's time to relax, and I must relax. And so you become compulsive about, uh, you know, how many, do we have an hour now to relax, okay? <laughs> and you, you don't, you know, you can't relax because the compulsiveness is there. Good idea. 
But if you relax for the whole day, that's maybe too being too lazy. When there's so many things to do, so many things to accomplish and get and achieve and improve and repair and whatnot, that, you know, it's, you can't just waste your life relaxing. That's not being responsible. So the the inner tyrant goes ranting, you know, about how you have to be responsible for yourself. Grow up and be responsible. And then these, then this this kind of thinking, you know, can make us incredibly tense all the time and stressed out because it's compulsive. You know, it it follows you wherever you go. I've told you about this dream I used to have when I, in the first year uh, that I was a monk. And I'd, I'd go into a cafe or something and uh, sit down and order a cup of coffee and then, and then I would be sitting there uh, and before I even drank the coffee, an inner voice would say, you shouldn't be here. You should be preparing for the examination. Now I went, you know, because I've been in the university, I went, you know, this was very compulsive, as a very compulsive student. <laughs> so, you know, I always felt guilty if I wasn't studying. So the only way I could relax when I was a student was to either drink or smoke ganja. <laughs> and then you kind of forget it for a while, it eases the tension of, of the, uh, of the uh, compulsiveness. Because it was like everywhere I went, they you shouldn't be here, you should, you've got an exam to take, you're not ready yet for this exam. And th so that everything would be and kind of corrupted in a way, couldn't enjoy anything because of this. You shouldn't be enjoying this. You shouldn't be just sitting here. You shouldn't. You've got to take the exam, and you're not ready for it. Now this was a repetitive dream. I had I don't know how many times the first year uh, with Ajahn Shah. And so of course I kept thinking, well, it's trying to say something, message, that maybe I'm not practicing hard enough. So I you know, kind of boost up the hours of practice. I used to get up at, we had, we had to meet in the sala at 3.30 in the morning for chanting. So I'd wake up at 2 o'clock. So I would be, and I'd do yoga. So I would be ready for the morning puja. And and then the whole ethos of the monastery was to work hard, practice hard, sleep little, talk little, eat little. So these are these are the suggestions uh, that the ego grasps. So then uh, observing this, beginning to observe this, this compulsiveness, it was. Uh, you know, I just, I felt, you know, felt any resentment of things that I thought were totally unimportant that would get in my way. Like, in, you know, they, 
people would come uh, and want to talk to me or there'd be some function and I didn't think it was important enough. I had my practice to, to work on. I'd feel quite resentful if I, if I was forced to go somewhere, do something that I didn't approve of as thinking very conducive to practice, just distraction. So one time in this monastery in, uh, called Tamsangpet, I was up there and I was really diligently practicing, you know, and I was I quite like that. I can I'm quite I can get quite high on concentration. So so then uh, Ajahn Chah comes for a visit to Tamsangpet. And and then he takes me that evening to a village fate. And uh, and and I didn't want to go. There's a, another Western monk who I can't remember who it was now. Neither of us wanted to go to this, but we couldn't very well refuse Ajahn Chah. So he takes us to this village where they're having this kind of big festival. And we sit on this platform and they, they have this loud uh, loudspeaker system blaring over everything and these glaring lights and all this noise. And, and then I'm thinking, this is a waste of time. I don't want to be here. Why did Ajahn Chah, why, what was, you know, why did he have to do this? This isn't right. He shouldn't have brought us here. I want to, I'm a serious practitioner of meditation. And this is a waste of time. Getting quite indignant. Then I look at Ajahn Chah, he seems to be sitting there. Probably this monastery is not very strict. Probably the monks have money. We shouldn't even be associated. I get into my snooty, supercilious mode. Puritanical positioning. Then, uh, so I was quite uh, upset with Ajahn Chah, thinking he shouldn't have done this, this was wrong. But then I started reflecting. You know, rather than just believing this, my, my righteous indignation. You know, so I began to see this kind of arrogance, my own arrogance, my own kind of dedication to hard work, my compulsive tendencies, and how angry or indignant I'd get if things got in my way. And then I began to see this in terms of suffering. Dukkha, it's, it's, it's a suffering, state of suffering to, to be controlling all the time. To divide everything up, this is important, this is real practice, this is, this is rubbish. The way I could dismiss, reject things, and then try to hold on to others. So this is where reflection in the Sati you begin to notice these tendencies in, you know, not as criticisms, but observing the, the dukkha, the kind of unpleasantness of this division in consciousness. Right and wrong, good and bad. The, the, the pain of being compulsive, always feeling you've got to get something, you're not ready yet, you're not good enough. You're not prepared. You haven't worked hard enough. You're not 
deserving enough. And you've, you've really got to work hard in order to prove yourself. Now this is, this is you know, these are words I'm using, but, but they, you know, you observe the kind of uh, effect, physiological effect on that, that one is experiencing. This sense of contraction. I notice this, work hard and you've got to get, you've got to achieve and attain. I feel in this very kind of commanding imperative, I tend to contract. I don't relax. So meditation can become another kind of intense contraction, controlling. Then the the whippa vadanha, the desire to get rid of, you know, this uh, resistance. I began to notice a, a kind of obsessive resistance to things. Just uh, you know, it wasn't intentional; it was habitual rejection, resistance, denial. These words. Just observing this tendency to. This other compulsion to to control and protect myself from negative things or unwanted or frightening possibilities. Don't tell me the truth. I can't, you know, tell me a lie, make me feel good. So the then the, the Gama Dunha, of course, is the sensual desire, the way the senses work, you know, so the seeing, sight, through hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the attractiveness and the repulsiveness of condition that we have through, through senses. Now, getting to know these three kinds of desires is not sakyaditi, not claiming that I'm an expert on on these desires, but because the desire is, you know, is is not is something I can observe. It's like just. Banya, to know your enemy, to know what, where you're deluded, where you lose it, where you get lost. You don't just run away from it and, and like the ostrich with its head in the sand. Refuse to, that's denial, isn't it? That's whip of what done. I don't want to know, don't tell me. But it's uh, willingness to learn, no, recognize. So some, it's painful, emotionally painful for all of us to allow uh, a lot of emotional, repressed emotions into consciousness because maybe we spend a lifetime trying to resist them, protect ourselves from those emotions. So this attitude of relaxed attention, 
is an, an attitude, you know, to, that I recommend or, or words, words that encourage you to open and relax, not to, in order to see the tendency may be, the visual tendency to contract and meditate in a compulsive way. With the assumption, maybe it's not even all that conscious, the assumption of I'm unenlightened and I've got to practice hard to become enlightened. Now by recognizing this, what thinking is, uh, this is why I recommend intentional thinking. And I thought everything, every possibility, you know, like uh, I'm the best, I'm the worst, every frightening identity, uh, repressed fears or anxieties or, you know, no matter how, you know, gross or horrible or, or wonderful. But the whole point was the listening, listening to the thinking process as Sakyaditi, I am this person, I am this body. I am good, I am bad, I'm a worthy or unworthy person. Listening, with, but not taking an interest in, the, in, the, in the, what's being thought, but observing thinking. And letting a lot of the fears and, and, and uh, anxieties that we repress into consciousness, not to, to react to them on a personal level, but just to recognize them. Even the, the thing you fear the most, you, you dread the most, when you think it intentionally, it is the way it is. And it, it has a, maybe an effect, an emotional effect on you. But the awareness has room for everything. You know, awareness allows things to be what they are. The, the devils, the angels, the dark side, the light side, and all the rest, everything belongs. Where on a personal level, my personality is based on fear. On ignorance, trying to prove myself, trying to you know, learn how to survive in a, in a society. As a personality. And so this is where the, this first fetter, Sakyaditi, you really need to examine it, know what it is, not just try to get rid of, you know, have, take a stand against resisting the ego, trying to get rid of your vanity or your ego, trying to purify yourself by getting rid of, of these uh, unwanted, you know, we even use the word ego, it's, it's a, has a pejorative sense to it, or vanity, you know, it's despicable, isn't it, to be vain and self-centered is, is uh, you know, we look down on that. We don't want to be that way. But in terms of 
the ego, you know, the, that which is aware of the ego is not the ego. So one can be as vain and arrogant and silly and stupid or nonsensical or horrible or whatever in terms of thinking and then awareness of that. So the, the important is the awareness of thinking and the quality of the thought then can be seen and recognized. Your, your tendency to be intimidated and, and, and caught in reactions to your thoughts and memories then diminishes because you're beginning to see it for what it is. You're no longer just, you know, caught in the, in the reactive habit, fears and, and uh, desires that, that one is so attached to and identified with. So then there's consciousness, consciousness with awareness. There's wisdom rather than consciousness with ignorance and Sakyatiti Silabhata Brahmasa Vichikita. So the first one, Sakyatiti, personality or the ego. Silabhata Brahmasa, I use this term for the cultural conditioning in general. Just the, it's, it's the artificial stuff you acquire after you've been born as a, you know, you're physically born and then you acquire your cultural conditioning, the attitudes and values and ideals of your parents and social class and ethnic group and religion. It's a way of, you know, a lot of it's learned through just osmosis. You pick it up through your mother and father. And so we, you know, we don't question even our cultural conditioning. But, you know, you're not born English. You're born, and then, then your mother says, you're, you're a little English girl. <laughs> so, so that is, that's acquired, isn't it? That's an acquired concept told you're a girl or a boy and then and that rea that, that's a very strong identity with the gender of the body isn't it and then you know you're told how you know good boys good girls bad boys bad girls <laughs> you get you know these are just assumptions that way way the society uh, reacts to you to your to the way you are they think you're a good little girl or bad little girl. So this is uh, when we acquire that a sense of ourself as being good or bad. And this is this is the silabhata baramasa uh, and the sakyaditi silabhata baramasa. Vichikecha is doubt, is a third fetter, and that's through thinking. Thinking always leads to doubt. Attachment to thinking takes you to vichikecha. So, Wichikita, 
blocks off stream entry. You can't see the path clearly if you if you're just caught in your own thinking process, because you always end up with wichikicha, doubt. So notice that these three fetters are artifices. They're artificial. They're not. You're not born with them. In other words, like your body is not artificial. It's dhammachat, it's natural condition. And consciousness. But then, after you're born, then you get the conditioning process. It's, you get this, this, these ideas, these, these values, this language, this cultural assumption. This you, you get after when you're not born with it. So then you, as long as these three fetters dominate consciousness, you you cannot see the path of liberation. It's impossible. You might believe in the path or you have opinions about it, but you can't, you don't know it. You've never recognized it because of these three manacles that bind you to samsara. And that's why it's, uh, you know, encouraging you to really, these are, these are very clear teachings in the Theravada system. You know, so, so it's, the fetters are quite useful, the list of ten fetters are quite useful, like a check-off list. It make, it, you know, it gets you to really look, what is Sakyaditi? And not just, uh, you know, some nice poly definition of it, but the reality of it, of self, personality, of, of Sila Bhattabharamasa. Usually that's translated in English as clinging to rites and rituals. But it really means clinging to conventions, blind attachment to the conventions. Cultural conditioning is conventional conditioning, isn't it? No, it's not. Rites and rituals we think of as just, you know, lighting candles and incense. Are any of you really attached that much to candles and incense that it's blocking off stream entry? Or, you know, I can very well live my life without candles and incense, actually. I don't feel an obsessive need to light candles and incense and chant in Pali. So, that's not. Sila Patabharma, rites and rituals, they're not obstruction. But what has been obstructive to me is my cultural conditioning. Because uh, a lot of Western people have this arrogance of all that rites and rituals, those Asian Buddhists, they, they light candles and burn incense and all that's, that's not real Buddhism, that's Sila uh, Bhattabharamasa, clinging to rites and rituals and to prove that I'm free from rites and rituals. I refuse to light candles and burn incense and bow to those golden images that those Buddhists bow to. And what is that? That's Sakyaditi, isn't it? I'm not like them. I know what the Buddha taught. They don't. This is all, you know, it's full of self, isn't it? And uh, and and the Lubatta Baramata because culturally, you know, culturally, 
a culture different, you know, from being brought up as a Christian, you're told right from the beginning never to bow down to golden images, graven images. You know, that's a big sin, to bow to images. So I think all Jewish and uh, Christian people at first have a bit of a problem when you have to bow to Buddha Rupa the first time. <laughs> because it's so ingrained in the culture. It's a Silabhata Baramasa. <laughs> and then the Wichikita. So that with these three, once you penetrate, see through these. These now these are guidelines for reflection. We're not trying to get rid of of personality or or cultural conditioning or thinking. But see them for what they are, you know, so you know them. You're not you're not operating from being blind blindly bound to the convention, to the artificial human uh made uh, conventions that we have. Whether they no matter whether they're good ones or bad ones. So this does take a, you know, determination, examining, investigating, the, so to see what Sakyaditi really is. So these are my insights. I, I, you know, see clearly that Sakyaditi is thinking. My attachment, attachment to thinking. Attachment to the five khandhas out of ignorance. Because I've examined thinking and I haven't just taken a stand against thinking and trying to purify thought, but even think impurely to see thought as a condition rather than, and, and how thoughts affect consciousness. You know, thinking in negative ways affect, you know, if this is feeling to me. Thinking in positive ways make me feel inspired and happy. And, and certain, you know, the power of words and concepts, they do. They have, they have impact on consciousness. So being aware of that impact is where consciousness and mindfulness come together and, and wisdom. So you're, you're informing yourself with wisdom rather than just operating endlessly from avicca or ignorance. So the, the point is, is awaken now, not practicing now to awaken in the future. It's the imminent, natural state of being it's not an attainment and it's not a personal ability. It's natural. So the Buddhists uh, encourage us to recognize this very natural state of being aware, conscious, with the limitations of the human form, the restrictions of the five kinds, but learning from it, studying and investigating these khandhas till you see there's no longer delusion about them. No longer assumptions or 
opinions about them, you're recognizing them. All conditions are impermanent. The base and Karani Chah. 